0: Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 19 through 24 and 28 through 40. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 19 through 24 and 28 through 40. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. "'I've spoken openly to the world,' Jesus replied. "'I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together.'" I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did, you, or did others talk to you about me? Jesus answered, "'You say that I'm a king. "'In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world "'is to testify to the truth. "'Everyone on the side of truth listens to me.'" "'What is truth?' retorted Pilate. "'With this, he went on again to the Jews gathered there "'and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, "'but it is your custom for me to release to you "'one prisoner at the time of the Passover.'" Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I swear, there's like thousands of children at this church. I love it. And every, every Sunday, there's more. We're very fertile. Um, all right. Well, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this Palm Sunday. Uh, We just want to take a moment and be silent before the Lord before we open the scriptures and just offer ourselves and whatever we brought into the room this morning in our stories to God to speak directly into those places. So would you join me in a moment of silence and prayer and I will open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God, we come to you with all kinds of expectations about who you are and what you will be and do for us. And we pray this morning that we would surrender those expectations to you so that we can let you roll on your terms. We ask that you would speak into our lives, into the places that we are still withholding from you today, this whole Holy Week and beyond it, so that we can understand better who you are and who we are called to be as your followers. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to open with a story. And this is a true story, even though it may not sound like a true story, it is a true story. So it starts in a tiny town in the middle of the the Midwest, in the middle of nowhere, 400 miles from here. And by tiny, I mean it is a hustling and bustling town of nine. Any streets that aren't covered in graffiti are covered by creepy vegetation. All but a couple of homes have been abandoned. The zip code has been discontinued and most of the buildings have been condemned. And if you look closely in certain places, you can see a few little wisps of smoke coming from underground. Because 65 feet below the surface of this tiny town, there are tunnels. There are miles and miles of tunnels that span the entire length and width of this town from beginning to end. And in these tunnels, there is a silent force. It's a quiet monster so fierce that 40 years ago, it systematically dismantled this entire community. It turned neighbors against neighbors, husbands against wives, parents against children, until there was nothing left. So just a few decades ago in Centralia, Pennsylvania, it was a a booming and bustling coal mining town. People were optimistic, there were plenty of jobs, neighbors were friends, families lived and worked and loved among each other, but one day in 1983, everything changed. A 12-year-old boy was outside playing in Centralia and he started to notice this kind of strange wispy smoke coming up from underground and he went over to take a look, but before he knew what was happening, his feet started sinking into the ground. And then his knees and then his torso until he was fully underground, surrounded by this kind of smoky quicksand. It was terrifying. Thankfully, his cousin was nearby, and he started screaming for his cousin, and his cousin came and pulled him out of the quicksand and saved his life. But they knew that there was something deeply sinister happening underground. And Within 24 hours, every journalist within driving range was in Centralia, Pennsylvania, investigating investigating what was happening in these smoky tunnels just under the surface of the town. So it turns out that there was this massive fire that was burning deep underground. And by was, I mean is. It is still burning under Centralia. And and this isn't like a blaze, a little tiny campfire, this is a blazing inferno. It's 300 feet high over an eight mile stretch and it's 400 miles from here, it's kind of terrifying. At its current rate, the, the fire in Centralia could continue burning for 250 years. Can you imagine living on top of that? But what's interesting is that those couple of cousins in the 80s who discovered this fire, they weren't the first ones to see what was happening. There were a few people in the neighborhood who had kind of started to to notice the smoke and they started to pay attention to it, but for the most part, the, the town government just kind of blew it off. They said it doesn't affect most people, it's not that big a deal, it's contained underground. And in some ways, they were right, it was contained until one day it wasn't. So no one's really sure how this fire got started, they think maybe it was just a dumpster fire that really got out of control. But by the time they started to tackle the problem, it was too late for Centralia. Too many mine tunnels had been affected by the fire. So so rather than put out the fire, the whole town had to ask this question, do we stay or do we go? Do we move away somewhere else? Well, everyone had opinions. No one could agree. Some people marched. They formed committees. They fought in the grocery stores. They screamed in town hall meetings. They avoided each other in the street. Other people lobbied, they went door to door, they got political, they started to people-please their way into getting other people on their team. Everyone disagreed about what to do with the fire, everyone disagreed about how to handle the conflict, but everyone agreed on one thing. What was happening under the surface was ruining everything. And it's how so many of our relationships go too. Now, we are not living in a creepy ghost town on top of an all-consuming eternal flames of a blazing underground pit of hell, I hope. I mean, some of us live in Salem. Salem's a pretty weird place. (laughs) But let's assume for a second that you aren't physically in that situation, but it's still how so many of us approach our relationships. Some of us know that something bad is brewing just underneath the surface of some of our relationships, but we just ignore the problem. We pretend like it isn't there. We hope that maybe it's just going to go away. Others of us, we know that something's brewing there and we we get aggressive. We deal with our fear by fighting back. We fight everyone around us. We try to control things. Some of us try to people-please our way out of the issue. We try to, to convince everyone else to be on our team. But we all know whether our tendency is fight or flight or fawn or freeze, none of these work in the long run. Eventually, we're going to have to face what's brewing under the surface. Well, we are in one of our final, uh, actually, this is our final Sunday in our Lenten sermon series in the Gospel of John that we have been calling King and King and Criminal. And for the entire season of Lent, we've been unpacking this, the Passion Week, the Passion Narrative, and we've been exploring those final moments before Jesus went to the cross. And our passage this morning, it has surface motives and backroom deals and explosive emotions and everyone is dealing with this conflict that has been brewing around Jesus and they're dealing with it in their own way. So this part of the the gospel, I was reading this chapter and I'm like, this is like one of those movies or those books where you kind of see the story from the perspective of one character and then they like rewind it and you see the, the story from the perspective of a whole different character. So this morning, we are going to take a look at the same story through three different perspectives, three different ways of responding to the conflict that's happening around Jesus. We're going to look at three different characters in this story, and they're all in uh, John 18 and John 19. Peter, the priests, and Pilate. So let's begin. If you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And if you, just a reminder, if you need a Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, we have some Bibles in the back. We would love to for you to just take one home, or you can talk with one of our pastors. And we'd love to make sure that you have your own Bible that you can bring to church. So a few weeks ago, we took a look at one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle Peter. And just to recap, Jesus has predicted that Peter would betray him after Jesus is arrested. And Peter vows, that's never going to happen, Jesus. I will never betray you. But then there's this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested. And Peter is watching the whole thing from the sidelines. He's staying just close enough so he can kind of hear what's going on, but not close enough that he's risking getting his own handcuffs. So take a look at what happens in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Peter, Peter had been Jesus's faithful, right hand all throughout his ministry he'd watched jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle peter was the first one to profess that jesus was the messiah the christ since the beginning of the story he has declared his loyalty he would not favor fa- waver he would not fail but the one time that jesus needed his friend the most peter deserts him over and over and over again Well, if this is a story about Peter, it's also a story about us because at some point or another, we've all run away when we've been afraid. It's not always the kind of big outright we're going to betray our friend kind of things. Most of the time, our Peter tendencies to run away, they show up in small ways, subtle ways. We're faced with a conflict in our relationship, so we just avoid it. We run away. We stop showing up. We hold back who we are. We drop off the team, we change churches, we write them off, we cut them off because they don't don't deserve this relationship anymore. They hurt me. And it becomes this kind of way to protect ourselves. And what happens over time is that conflict avoidance, it starts to become this kind of quiet pattern in our lives. We end up going from relationship to relationship, church to church, protecting ourselves rather than actually doing the hard work of healing. We nurse grudges rather than forgiving. And self-preservation, it starts to become our priority when forgiveness or healing might require some hard work. Eventually when we're not looking, our Peter tendency can actually affect our relationship with God too. Because when we start to to feel afraid or ashamed or we don't understand something about God's character or something that God is doing in our lives, we just, we run away, we hide. And on the deep level of our souls, this kind of Peter tendency to run away, It starts to affect who we're becoming. But Peter's tendency to run away from conflict, it isn't the only perspective or tendency in this story. So let's take a look at some of the other characters who are also experiencing this conflict brewing all around Jesus. The chief priests. The chief priests. So they were mostly made up of men in the Jewish ruling class called the Sadducees. Sadducees were rich They were aristocratic, and they liked it that way. Archaeologists have found bottles of wine in the homes of some of the the Sadducees that would have been worth uh, $5,000 today. These these guys had a lot of money. Sadducees were responsible for regulating the system in, in the Jewish culture at the time, but they were also known for exploiting it because they had to walk this kind of tricky tightrope. They had to stay in good favor with the Romans, who ruled the area at the time, And the Romans hated the Jewish people. And they also had to stay in good favor with the Jewish people who hated the Romans. Around Jesus' day, the Sadducees had managed to, to work things out kind of just perfectly in their favor to keep the peace. They were tolerated by the crowds. They were tolerated by the Romans. And that was good enough for them as long as they could remain in power. And then Jesus starts coming on the scene. And if you remember a few chapters ago in John's gospel, in chapter 11, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and that signaled something to the people. There was this common understanding at the time that resurrection from the dead meant that the Messiah was coming, the one who would save them from their enemies. So these rumors, they start spreading like wildfire about Jesus. People flock to see this man they they flock to see what he's doing they put their faith in him and so the chief priests they feel like they're, they're maybe losing some control and they start to call in em- em- like emergency meetings all over the place in John 11 the chief priests and the, the Pharisees are whispering together right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead they say if we allow him to go on like this soon everyone will believe in him then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation Jesus' actions could mean big conflict with Rome later. So it's probably a good idea to just nip this thing in the bud. The priests knew that if unrest got to be too much in Jerusalem, if they couldn't control the pressure, then Rome was going to come in and destroy everything. So they come up with two charges to control Jesus. And I look at their charges and I'm like, this is actually pretty genius. Out of one side of their mouths, they accuse him of blasphemy so that the Jewish people will hate him. They say, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. That's out of one side of their mouths. Out of the other side of their mouths, they charge him with insurrection so that the Romans will hate him. They say, anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar, take him away, take him away, crucify him. The plan works. Jesus would die on the crossbeams of politics and piety. And if this is a story about the chief priest, it's also a story about our own tendencies. Because at some point or another, we've all raised our fists to control a conflict. And it's not always the big, loud, we're plotting to take someone's life kind of schemes. Most of the time, these chief priest tendencies, they show up in our hearts in smaller ways, in subtler ways. We're faced with a conflict, so we just jab back. We respond to criticism by criticizing back. We steamroll the conversations when we feel like we're losing control. We we blame, we subtly shame, we point fingers, we puff up. We start to put each other on trial, even just in our own minds or maybe in our private conversations. We get aggressive or we get passive aggressive. Maybe it's toward a colleague who spoke behind your back and it cost you a promotion or a relationship. Maybe it's at a dinner party when you've taken jabs at a friend who isn't there. Maybe you're a student and on your course evaluations, you you know you can get really harsh about a professor who you don't like because you can keep it anonymous, they'll never know who it is. We use our words as weapons to cut them deep. And for a second, acting like that, it can make us feel a little bit more like we're in control when something starts to feel like it's spiraling out of control. It gives us the sense that we can take back our power when our power seems to be slipping from our grasp, and it can alleviate our fear for just a moment. But what happens over time is that these kinds of conflicts, they start to follow us, and they get bigger, because the people around us start to worry what they're going to say or do that's going to set us off. They, They worry that we might turn against them, and slowly, subtly, people stop feeling safe around us. They stop letting us in to who they are. And on the deep level of our souls, these chief priest tendencies, they start to affect who we're becoming. But Peter's tendency to run away and the chief priest's tendency to fight back, it isn't the only tendency in the story. There is a third character, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the time. We've talked a bit about Pontius Pilate in this series. We don't know a ton about Pontius Pilate, but what we do know isn't super flattering. In his term as governor, he'd earned a pretty bad reputation with the the Jewish people that he ruled. And he had earned a pretty bad reputation with the Roman Caesar that he answered to. And that's when the crowds and the chief priests they whirl in Jesus. The scene is chaos. Everyone has opinions, of course. They're voicing them loudly, of course. Clearly, Pilate observes, everyone is angry with this man, Jesus, but it doesn't seem totally clear why. They all seem to want him executed, but Pilate doesn't want to do it. So he must have considered his next move a stroke of genius. He knew this was Passover. This was their holy week. And they did this kind of turkey pardon thing every holy week where they, if they had multiple captives, they would release one captive during Passover. Well, Pilate happens to have two captives. One of them could get pardoned. And maybe it'll be Jesus. The first captive was an anti-Roman terrorist named Barabbas. And there was a whole slew of charges against Barabbas. He was a murderer, an insurrectionist, a rebel. You take your pick. The second captive was Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth seemed harmless enough. So Pilate must have assumed that the Jewish people would send Barabbas to the cross. I mean, he was a famous insurrectionist and murderer. It just made sense. But Pilate made a fatal assumption. He was underestimating the crowd's hatred of Rome and love, of all things, anti-Rome. Jesus of Nazareth, this so-called king and messiah, he refused to lift a finger against Rome. So the people chant, release Barabbas. And what do we do with Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him. So Pilate is facing all of this pressure from all these different sides. So he tries to find another way to release Jesus. Three times he tells the crowd, I find this man not guilty. Three times he tries to push the truth. He's actually standing by the Jesus who said to him, all who love the truth recognize what I say is true. But three times the mob just pushes back harder at Pilate. And just like, just when Pilate, it seems like Pilate is gonna be not playing into their agenda, The the mob pulls out this secret weapon, and someone says, ah, but Pilate, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. It's incredibly strategic, because now Pilate is listening. So freeze time for a second. A Little more background about Pilate. So his mentor in Rome had been the Caesar's chief lieutenant named Sejanus until only very recently when Caesar had suspected that Sejanus was working covertly behind his back on an overthrow plot, and he had him arrested and executed along with several of Sejanus' associates, just in case they were working with him. And Pilate happened to be one of Sejanus's associates. At this point, Pilate is already on Caesar's bad side. He does not want to get put on that blacklist. And I have to imagine that he was dangerously close already. Unfreeze. So Pilate clearly doesn't want the crucifixion to happen, but there's that one voice that's pushing him over the edge to act in his own self-interest, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. In other words, Pilate, you have someone standing right in front of you who's claiming to be king, and you're just going to let him go? What's Caesar going to think of that? It wasn't an idle threat. If word got back to Rome, Pilate could go the way of Sejanus. He could lose his job or his head, and everyone knew it. The religious leaders, they had to have known that with that line, well, Pilate will come around. Why would Pilate risk his own career? Why would he put his own reputation on the line for a man who had done nothing to deserve his favor? Pilate knew that if it came down to it, that to stand up for the truth, that might mean sacrificing everything for Jesus. This man to whom he owed no favors, shared no loyalties, and who didn't deserve that kind of risk. How quickly the tides turned. In the end, what pushed Pilate over the edge was not the truth. It was not justice. It was, oh yes, but what will they think? So simply and starkly, the story says, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. He pronounces a sentence that he doesn't believe that Jesus deserved, but he does it anyway to save himself. So if this is a story about Pilate, it's also a story about us, because at some point or another, we all cave under pressure to the people around us. And it's not always these kind of big, obscene, handing someone over to be crucified-sized things. Most of the time, these Pilate tendencies show up in smaller and subtler ways. We're faced with some kind of conflict that we don't know how to handle, so we people-please our way out of it. We say yes when we know we should say no. We bend to accommodate anxiety, our own or someone else's. We hold back on speaking the truth because the truth might hurt or it might just get turned on us. We give in to the loudest voice even when the loudest voice is wrong because we're afraid of the consequences if we don't. And we come up with any number of excuses for acting this way. We don't like conflict. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to hurt anyone else's feelings. We don't want anyone to think that we're overly critical or controversial or high maintenance. You fill in the blank. But bit by bit, we start acting like Pilate. And we may not even realize that we're doing it, but gradually we stop siding with the truth. We stop siding with justice just like Pilate, and we we become guided by that one nagging voice, Yeah, but what will they think? And what happens over time is that we develop a a pattern of self-preservation and people-pleasing. We cling to everyone else's opinions of us to tell us what we should do and who we should be. And we stop being honest. We stop taking risks. We stop standing up for what's right. And eventually, when we're not looking, our pilot tendencies, they can start to affect our relationship with God, too. We start to work for God's approval. We think that maybe we can become good enough or do enough to avoid God's judgment or God's wrath or God's bad opinion of us. And on the deep level of our souls, the pilot tendencies start to affect who we're becoming. So there we have it. We have three storylines, three different ways of dealing with the conflict and the storms that grew up in our lives under the surface. Peter, the priests, and Pilate. When you think about the ways that that these people handled their conflicts, which one do you connect with the most? The reality is that all of us connect with these on some level, and depending on the circumstance and the people who we're having the conflict with, there's a, a relational cultural theorist named Dr. Linda Hartling, and she boiled all of this down to three ways of operating when we're faced with a conflict. She said that when we're faced with an emotional or relational conflict, we have three common human responses to deal with it. Some of us move toward the conflict, like Pilate did. We move toward the people. We appease and we please and we try to give them what they want so that they'll get off our backs. We operate out of the fear that maybe we're not good enough on our own and we live by the mantra, but what will they think? So some of us move toward the people that we're struggling with. Some of us move against the people that we're struggling with, like the chief priest did. We come out swinging, we get aggressive, we try to get our power back by shaming and blaming and plotting. So some of us move against and some of us move away, like Peter did. We withdraw, we hide, we silence our contributions. Most of us do all three from time to time, depending on who we're with and what the conflicts are like, moving away, moving against, and moving toward. They are different responses, but at the root of it, they all have one thing in common, and that one thing is fear. Fear of any number of things. Fear of rejection, fear of losing control, fear of hurting someone else. So this is a story about Pilate and the priests and Peter, and it's also a story about us. Because just like them, so much of the time, we operate out of fear and not out of faith. But the good news is that there is one more perspective in this story. So we're going to back up. It's early in the morning before any of these other characters enter the scene, before the cross, before the trials. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's going in there with his disciples and he knows what's coming next. His hour has finally come and he has some options. He could have tried to bargain. He could have tried to people please, to make alliances with the chief priests who plotted to take his life. He could have fought back. Everyone wanted him to. He could have run away. He could have made a home in a different region among a different kind of people, started over completely. It's not too late. But instead, he waits there in the garden. And Judas, one of his longtime friends and disciples, he's, he comes in with a mob with torches and lanterns and weapons. And, and verse 4 of this passage says, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. "'Who are you looking for?' he asked. "'Jesus the Nazarene,' they replied. "'Once more he asked them, "'Who are you looking for?' "'And again they replied, "'Jesus the Nazarene. "'I told you I am he,' Jesus said. "'And since I am the one you want, "'let these others go.'" Jesus knows what's about to happen to him, but in the face of death, Jesus does not please. He does not fight. He does not run. He steps forward He makes sure that they know that he's the one that they want. And he chooses the hardest way of the cross. That's not to say that in the Gospels we don't read about Jesus' temptations to follow a different agenda. Periodically throughout the story, he he was tempted to gather his own people, to seize his own kingdom, to hoist himself up on a throne. At one point, he faced the temptation to avoid the cross and the pain associated with the cross altogether, to save himself himself to choose a less costly way. But in the end, Jesus knows that the only way through this, out of this painful conflict is through it. Jesus was the only one who didn't deserve any consequence for any sin or any shame, but still he took all of the consequences of all the pain and sin and shame around him, and he took them on himself. Jesus died a rebel's death, so he died in place of Barabbas, Jesus died knowing that if he just said the word, the crowds would rise up against Rome. So he died in place of the Romans. Jesus died knowing that if the crowds rose up against the Romans, then the Romans would come down and crush the crowds. So Jesus died in place of the crowds. Jesus died knowing that the world was full of unhealed conflicts, full of sin, full of shame. So he died in place of the world. This is a story about Jesus, but it's also a story about us. Before Jesus, because Jesus went to the cross, all of those conflicts that we've stirred up in the world, all the the people-pleasing and plotting, all the fighting, all the finagling, all the avoiding and the averting, it just, it goes to the cross with him. He died for all of the injustice and the abuse and the violence that we've chosen to perpetuate in the world, all the fear and the blaming and the shaming. He said, let all that come on to me and see it's death on the cross. And he invites us to live in a new, a different kind of way. Jesus doesn't promise that he'll calm all the conflicts that we face in this life. Avoiding conflict is not how we need to go through life. Instead, he gave us the cross so that we would have somewhere to put the pain and the fear. And we can approach those challenges knowing that we are fully and completely loved. And fully and completely empowered by his spirit to face those hard things. There's a writer named Parker Palmer, and he put it this way. He said, the cross says the pain stops here. The way of the cross is a way of absorbing pain, not passing it on. A way that transforms pain from destructive impulse into creative power. When Jesus accepted the cross, his death opened up a channel for the redeeming power of love. Because out of his horrible death, we are given eternal Life. And not just in the sense of life after death, but in the sense of a totally different way, an eternal way to live now, starting now. Jesus squarely faces the reality of his situation, the costliness of his mission, and he presses forward, even though it literally costs him his life. Because in the end, Jesus wasn't interested in preserving his own life at all, he was interested in our new life. So he denied himself. He took up his cross, and he laid down his life for you and me, and Jesus invites us to follow him. When we follow him to and through the cross, we put to death with all of those old ways of relating, the fight or flight or freeze or fawn ways of being, just like Jesus did. We get to let that go, hand it over. We get to belong to Jesus' way, even in the midst of life's hardest moments. And what this means for us is that when we belong to Jesus, we can be assured that we have insurmountable worth. We know that because he made us and saved us and loved us, we are now completely lovable. And because we know that we are eternally loved, that we are saved even from the consequences and pain of death and separation, self-preservation, self-gratification, self-justification, those things no longer need to govern us anymore. We no longer need to save ourselves Jesus already did that. And what this means is that I no longer have to fight for approval or acceptance or control anymore. I don't have to flee from hard conversations or uncertainties or truths anymore. When I know that I'm loved like this, I don't have to pick between fight or flight or freeze or fawn. We can approach our conflicts and one another and our struggles directly in a spirit of love and grace and truth, knowing that love ultimately wins the day. Instead of reacting out of fear or self-preservation, we can choose a response based on what is good and true and loving. Rather than trying to save ourselves, we can choose to lay down our lives and our rights for each other. We can choose the way of Jesus. Let's pray. God, some of us, Come into the room this morning with challenges they are in our minds and our hearts, maybe even with people who are around us today. And we offer those things to you. We ask that you would put our old tendencies, the the things that make us want to fight or run away, avoid, flee, people please, those things that are not of you, we ask that we would hand them over to you to put to death and in that place in their place God we offer we ask that you would offer us a new way to be that you would empower us by your spirit to love to speak and act with grace and truth as you do knowing that who we are is not at stake we ask that you would give us courage and wisdom to go into those hard conversations whether they're imminent or will happen in the future knowing that you're with us that you love us and you love those around us too we thank you for the work that you did and and are doing in our lives, so that we can go confidently knowing that love wins the day. And we ask that today you would help us to put our faith in that. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.